you for being here. We hope and pray that our worship together will be beneficial to you. If you're looking for a church home, as always, we invite you to consider the work here. We're grateful for the membership here, all of our young folks, and the great things that are going on with them. And we always want to remember those who are sick and those who are in need of our prayers on a regular basis. We've had a number of people that have battled illness, and we're grateful for those who have been restored to health and those who are still struggling. We want to continue to offer up prayer to God for them. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 2 in our study today as we contemplate the peaceable kingdom. Before I begin this morning, I do want to say that I know I've been gone quite a bit the last couple of months. I've been in and out of town, and I appreciate the elders and all those who have done so much to continue the work here. And I appreciate the opportunity to preach and teach and to be a part of the church here. And I want you to know how much I appreciate it. It's an honor for me, and thank you for that. So we look at Isaiah chapter 2, the peaceable kingdom. Isaiah, of course, wrote about 750 years prior to the coming of the Christ. And you remember it was Isaiah who identified the Christ, the Messiah, to come as one who would be born of a virgin. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. In chapter 9 at verse 6, the prophet would speak of the Christ to come and say, and say in the long ago that He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 53, the prophet talks about the Christ to come, the Messiah again, underscoring the fact that upon the Messiah, the sins of the world would be heaped. So it's in light of the coming king that Isaiah pictures the coming of his kingdom. That being said, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 2 with you, and I want you to think about some things that grow out of a study of this chapter, and particularly this context. Because we're talking about the peaceable kingdom, the kingdom that the Lord established in the long ago. So the first thing we want to talk about has to do with the establishment of the Lord's house. And there are two things that really stand out in our study today concerning the establishment of the Lord's house. Number one, we are introduced to the period when the Lord's house would be established. That's very important. And then number two, Isaiah is going to identify for us or pinpoint the place where the Lord's house would be established. So having said that, look with me at Isaiah chapter 2. I want you to see this from the word of the prophet in the long ago. It shall come to pass in the latter days. This has to do with the period of the establishment of the Lord's house. The latter days, and we think about the work of Jesus, and the fact that the Lord Jesus would inaugurate a new covenant when he partook of the Passover in Matthew chapter 26, as told by the inspired writer many years ago. You remember Jesus said in the waning days of Judaism that this is the blood of the new covenant which will be shed for many for the remission 
of sins. The Lord Jesus pictured a time when He would establish a kingdom. It would be established by His blood, bought by His blood, we might say. In Acts chapter 2, you remember Peter and the long ago preached the gospel in its fullness for the very first time. To understand that in the presentation of the gospel of Christ on that occasion, Peter went all the way back to the prophet Joel. And he said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In it shall come to pass in the last days that God shall pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall dream dreams, and your old men shall see visions. And upon my men servants and maid servants, he said, I'll pour out my flesh. Connecting the establishment of the church to the last days. It was the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke to the fathers in various, at various times in various ways but now has spoken to us in the last days by His Son. That's an important fact. And then, not just the period when the church or this house would be established, but the place. Note, if you would, what the prophet said. Down in verse 3, he said, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah now pinpointing for us the place where the house of God would be established. Well, where was that? The city of David. Zion. Out of Zion shall go forth the law. But then he said, the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. You remember in the book of Luke in chapter 24, prior to the Lord ascending to heaven, that Jesus said repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name beginning in Jerusalem. And he said, you're witnesses of these things. But then he instructed them in verse 49 to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascended to heaven, He said that they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. We come to Acts chapter 2. We've got the right period and we have the right place. Everything leading up to the second chapter of the book of Acts is pointing to the coming of the establishment of the Lord's house. That is, the kingdom of God, the church. But once you come to Acts chapter 2, you have the writer there identifying for us the birth and birthplace of the church. Now there's a second thing that we ought to consider. Number one, we talk about the establishment of the Lord's house. But number two, the exaltation of the Lord's house. Isaiah saw the church as an exalted mountain set above the hills. Now there's a reason why the prophet, going back in history, 
some 2,700 years, would picture the church or the house of God as an exalted mountain. Well, why? Well, number one, because of the one who bought it. And number two, because of the one who built it. Jesus Christ was the builder of this house. Now, you remember back in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king over the Babylonian Empire. In his interpretation of that dream, the prophet foretold of four kingdoms that would rise and fall, and we're talking about earthly kingdoms here, that would rise and fall in successive order, beginning with the Babylonians. And he said that the Babylonian Empire would later give way to the Medes and the Persians. And we talk about Cyrus, the king. But then that Persian empire would fall to the Grecians. In falling to the Grecians, they would control or demonstrate power, exercise authority and power over the earth. But they would then yield to the Roman empire. And so it's in that context that Daniel talks about a stone cut without hands that literally filled the whole earth. What's he talking about there? I think he's talking about the house of God, the kingdom of God, the church. And so in comparison or in contrast to these earthly kingdoms that rise and fall, in verse 44, Daniel then said, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom will not be left to other people, but rather it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And then listen to what he said. It shall stand forever. Now you can go back and look at history. That great Babylonian empire has been gone many, many years. The same is true for the Medes and the Persians the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. But the kingdom of God continues to roll on. Why? Because it is an indestructible kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. And so when we talk about the exaltation of the Lord's house, to understand it is an exalted house because, number one, the Lord is the one who built it. Now, you remember in Matthew chapter 16, we have Jesus in Palestine. And He is at the northern part of Palestine in Caesarea Philippi. And He asked the disciples a very important question about His identity. They wanted, he wanted to know, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And you remember what they said? Some say, in the long ago, He said, some say, you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then asked them the pointed question, but whom do you say that I am? And the Bible tells us that Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then, based upon that bedrock statement, said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say to you that you're Peter. And upon this rock, that is, upon this bedrock statement, this affirmation that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I'm going to build my church. When John the Baptist began preaching, you remember Matthew tells us that his message was very simple. Repent, why? 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, the Bible tells us Jesus echoed the very same message. In Mark 9, verse 1, the Lord would say to those who were present on that occasion, there are some of you who are standing here that shall not taste death until you see the kingdom come with power. Well, when did that occur? Pentecost Day. How long ago? About 2,000 years ago. Well, where? In the city of Jerusalem. Just as the prophets of old envisioned and foretold of. Now, we talk about Jesus being the builder. You remember in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul affirms that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He was the perfect representation of the Father. And he points out that in terms of creation, well, the Lord's the one that brought the world into existence. All things were created by Him. But down in verse 18, he said, talking about Christ, He's the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning. The word beginning there means active cause. The source from which something came into being. So what Paul's saying there is, when we talk about the church, this is not some man-made institution, but rather this church is glorious because of the one who built it. Well, who was that? Jesus. But not only did he build it, but the Bible tells us he bought it, paid for it with his blood. Again, you go back and look at Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus instituted this memorial feast that we identify as the Lord's Supper. He said, This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 20, the Bible tells us that Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. Now the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.25 that Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for it. Again, underscoring the exaltation of this great house. You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 15, Paul was writing to Timothy so that he might know how to conduct or behave himself in the house of God, which is, he said, the church of the living God. But note if you would what he declared about this institution. It's the house of God. It's a very special house. Exalted. Why? Because of the one who bought it, the one who built it. And we could also point out it belongs to him as well, doesn't it? If he built it, and he did, and he bought it, and he did, then it belongs to him. And those of us who are in Christ, we belong to the Lord. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. There is a third thing that I want to share with you in our study. And this has to do with the expanse of the Lord's house. Here's a question. How do we enter the house of God? How do we enroll in this divine, in this divine institution? Well, the Bible tells us regarding this exalted house, the prophet in the long ago pointed out that it is an inclusive institution. Not just inclusive, but also it's exclusive. 
It is the only one of its kind. That's very important. Now, having said that, look at what the prophet said. Drop down look at verse 2. He said, It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. Now note, all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The Bible says, He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When we talk about the inclusiveness of this exalted house, to understand that the invitation is to all, it's open to all. Doesn't matter what our race, doesn't matter our gender, educational background, and so on. No, Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor. And the promise is, I'll give you rest. You remember when John wrote the Revelation in Revelation chapter 22? John, before he lays aside the pen of inspiration, sets forth the call of Almighty God. He said, the Spirit and Bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come, and whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. The Bible tells us God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is that all people, Jew, Gentile, all be saved. That's the inclusive nature of this institution. Now you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you remember the Apostle Paul said God would have all men to be saved. The word men there is humankind, male and female. God's design is that all would obey the gospel. When Isaiah the prophet said that many nations would flow into it, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 16, that He reconciled both, that is, both Jew and Gentile, in one body unto God through the cross. The one body is the exalted mountain that we're reading about, that divine institution, born and bred in the mind of Almighty God. The church was not and is not an after, afterthought of God. Now some say that when Jesus came to earth, because He was rejected by the Jewish people, that he parenthetically set up what they want to call the church age. Listen, the church and the kingdom are one and the same. Now, not every time that you read about a kingdom in Scripture, not every time that's a reference to the church. But often those terms are used interchangeably. For example, in Matthew 16, when Jesus promised to build the church, you remember in verse 19, He told the apostles, Peter specifically, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's the same institution. The Lord came to establish this body. Why? Because this body houses the saved. It is an inclusive institution. But then secondly, it is a very exclusive institution. Now, there are a lot of places in our world today 
that we might identify as exclusive in nature. Not just anybody can walk through the doors and say, you know what, I'd like to be a member here, or I want to be a member here. It doesn't work that way. But when it comes to the church, it's open to all. Now, the means by which God makes people fit for this kingdom or this exalted house is by obedience to the gospel. Again, what was it the prophet said? Out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from where? From Jerusalem. Was it not Jesus who said in John chapter 6, It's written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father comes unto me. Why do you think Jesus gave the great commission instructing those in the first century with these words? Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. How do we become a child of God? We've got to hear the gospel. Now Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the idea is the gospel is for all. And those who obey the gospel, they become a part of this exalted institution. This very exclusive institution. Now look, there are a lot of churches in the world today. There are many, many denominations that exist as we speak. The difference between this exalted institution, the house of God, and denominations, what's the primary difference? They were built by men. But the church we're talking about was built by the Lord, bought by the Lord, belongs to the Lord. That's the institution that we want to belong to. Now on Pentecost Day, Peter, of course, preached the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He pointed out that Jesus Christ was exalted to the right hand of God. In that exalted state, you remember, He would sit upon a spiritual throne, not a literal throne. Now, there are a lot of things that are going on in the Middle East, and you've got a lot of doomsday prophets out there talking about this is the end of times. The Bible does not teach that. That geographical location does not belong to the nation of Israel. God's chosen people are not physical in nature. Not the Jewish people. Now you want to talk about God's people today? Paul said in Galatians 6.16 6, that they are the Israel of God. And Peter said, you're an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God does not define His holy nation in terms of geography. But rather, His holy nation exists around the globe. Wherever the seed of the kingdom, which is the Word of God, goes, and when that seed falls on honest and good hearts, it always yields fruit. That's what Jesus said. Isaiah said, the Word of the Lord would not return to him void. We're talking about the power of the gospel. Now again, we talk about this exclusive institution. What's so exclusive about this institution? Well, again, to understand that the Lord built it, 
The Lord bought it. It belongs to Him. And those who obey the gospel of Christ, they enter that institution. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah pictured a day in which God would establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It would be a different kind of covenant. He said, They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, for they shall all be taught by the Lord. In order to become a child of God, you've got to be taught. You've got to understand the fundamentals of the gospel. Well, what's that? Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, raised again the third day. Do you believe that? If you believe that and you will respond with a penitent heart, like they did on Pentecost Day, you can enter the kingdom. The Bible tells us that those people on that day, they were cut to the heart, pricked in the heart. And they cried out unto Peter and the other apostles, and they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now Jesus had told the apostles that they would be endued with power from on high. The Lord Jesus said that He would give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Pentecost Day comes, they're in Jerusalem, the right time, the right place. They're convicted of sin, they want to know, okay, how do we remedy our sinful condition? How is it that we can somehow be forgiven of what we've done? Well, Peter said, you need to repent. And he said, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. To do something in the name of means to do it by His authority. Was Peter an inspired spokesman? Yes, he was. Did God give him and the other apostles the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, the answer would be yes. So when they instructed those people on Pentecost Day to obey the gospel, and the Bible says in verse 41, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When they obeyed the gospel, were they a part of this exalted house? Yes. The gospel message, it's inclusive. The house of God, inclusive, open to all. But it's also exclusive. And by that I simply mean the only people who are in this exalted house are those who've done what Peter said to do 2,000 years ago. The terms of admission have not changed. Never will change. No, the psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Now there's a fourth thing I want to share with you. It has to do with the evaluation of the Lord's house. Now again, back in verse 3, the prophet said, Out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We're talking about people that hear the gospel and enjoy pardon from sin. It's a wonderful thought. Now when you contrast the people living in Isaiah's day to those of us who live today, we're talking about a different covenant. There was a remembrance of sin every year. That's what the Hebrew writer said. But based upon the shedding of Christ's blood, we can be forgiven, pardoned from sin in fullness. In other words, the debt's been paid, hasn't it? Jesus paid the debt for sin on Calvary. Peter said Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? To bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit. 
Jesus died so that we might enjoy forgiveness. Again, Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus said, This is the blood of the covenant which is shed for many. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for what reason? The remission of sins. So those who comply with the terms of admission, they enjoy pardon. But then also peace. Now look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now he's not talking about some earthly kingdom where people are living in peace, some type of utopian environment on earth. He's not talking about that. But rather what he's talking about is that through the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Christ, the Prince of Peace brings peace to people lost and dying in sin. Matter of fact, you remember in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul talks about those who are outside a covenant relationship with God. He said they're without hope, without God in this world. In verse 13 he said, But now in Christ Jesus you that once were far off made near, brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he said, For he is our peace, who's made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that it might make one new man, reconciling both in one body unto God through the cross. Well, what are you saying, Paul? That Jesus at the cross was able to take both Jew and Gentile and forge them into the same body. That was God's design. So when we respond to the Prince of Peace, the message of the Prince of Peace, we have peace with God. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. But we also preach a message of peace. Now let me tell you what. You want to clear up the problems that are going on around the world? The conflict between Russia and Ukraine? The conflict going on in Palestine. Let me tell you how you do that. Not with legislation. No, you do that by preaching and teaching a gospel of peace. It's imperative. When the, when the Hebrew writer penned these words in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, he made a statement that I think reflects upon the peaceful disposition in the body. He said, follow holiness and peace without which no man can see the Lord. The design of the gospel is that we might live together in peace. And really what he's saying here is that they're going to take their instruments of war and use them no longer for war, but rather in a benevolent way to help one another. Well, did that come to pass in the first century? Sure it did. Read Acts chapter 2. Note their benevolent giving spirit. That's what the gospel does. It changes the lives of people. And the only way you can change the lives of people is by putting God's Word up here in your mind. As the writer said in the long ago, I'll put my laws in their mind, I'll write them on their heart. The problems that we're having in the world today are because people are not following the Prince of Peace. They're not honoring the pattern for peace. Well, what's the pattern? The gospel. Now, there's a promise connected here. I know our time's gone very quickly. When Jesus comes, 
His second coming, and He will come. When the Lord Jesus comes, He's not coming to set up a kingdom on earth. How do I know that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, the Bible says that when the Lord comes, He will deliver the kingdom up to God, up to the Father. He's not coming to set up. He's coming to deliver up. That means those of us who are in the kingdom, when Jesus delivers us up to the Father, we're numbered among the saved, Ephesians 5.23. Today I ask you, are you a member of the church? Are you a part of the house of God? If you're not in this exclusive body, the invitation's open to you. All you have to do is do what they did 2,000 years ago. Repent, be baptized. The Bible tells us that your sins will be forgiven. God will add you to the church. You live faithfully, and guess what? You've got a home in heaven. If you're here today and you need to respond to the invitation, maybe your life's not what it ought to be and you'd like to ask for the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.